And please turn with me in God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to read the first 12 verses together of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 12. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness." Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, when I told people that I was going to be preaching through 2 Thessalonians, uh, they said, what are you going to do when you get to the man of lawlessness? Um, It's kind of a notoriously difficult uh, passage to think about. Maybe you've had that experience when you're reading your Bible, you come across something that's just very difficult to understand. Um, You know, you're reading through Daniel and everything's going just fine. He's in the lion's den. You can understand it. You turn the page and suddenly there are all these prophecies and you think, what on earth is going on here? Uh, Maybe you've had that experience reading through the book of the Revelation. You've gotten to something and said, what on earth is going on here? Um, and, And 2 Thessalonians 2 can be one of those passages where we ask the question, what on earth is going on here? Uh, There are many questions that come up in this passage. Uh, What is the rebellion that Paul refers to? Who is the man of lawlessness? Uh, What does it mean that he will sit in the temple? Um, Who or what is restraining him? Um, When was that restraint going to be removed? What does that mean? What does it mean that he will come with power, with signs and wonders? Uh, There are so many questions uh, that this passage brings up. I don't think we can deal with them all in one sermon. Uh, So my my plan, uh, Lord willing, is to kind of think about this passage in a broad sense and then come back to it and try to go through more of the particulars and see 
what we find here. So if I don't answer every question you have about this passage today, uh, Lord willing, we'll come back to it together um, and look more next time. But I want to think about this passage more broadly because I think when we think about it in its broad context, whatever the difficulty of the details, the main thrust of what Paul is saying here becomes very clear. Um, he, he wants with, he's writing with a very, very intentional purpose in mind that he communicates in the first few verses of this passage. He's writing first with a comforting purpose. The purpose of him writing these verses is not to leave God's people disquieted. It's actually the exact opposite. He's writing that they might be comforted. So we want to think about the comforting purpose. And then this passage reminds us that all of history is on a collision course between good and evil arriving at a decisive moment. So Paul is going to talk about the collision course that all of history is moving towards. And then he's going to talk about how there is a crucial battlefield on which this fight will be waged. And he wants God's people to understand that as well. So that's how we're going to think about this passage more broadly. Paul's comforting purpose, the collision course that history is on, and the crucial battlefield uh, that Paul outlines here. Uh, He writes with a comforting purpose. It's very important for us to realize that right out of the gate. If you don't realize that that's what Paul's doing here, if we don't listen to what the Holy Spirit says through the apostle here, it's not going to be possible for us to make sense of what follows. Um, Paul is intentionally writing with a comforting purpose, and that comes across very clearly in the first three verses. Right now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him... We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Uh, Paul is writing so that they would not be shaken in mind, not be shaken by false teaching false news, it's clear that Paul realizes that something is being taught in the church that is alarming people, that is causing them to be disturbed, causing them to be alarmed. And what is that that's causing people to be alarmed? Um, it's, It's the word that seems to be coming to the Thessalonian church saying, Jesus has already come. And you can see why that would be a disturbing thought for God's people. If God's people have been taught to anticipate this great day that's coming, that will be a relief of all that we suffer here below, right? That's what he had just said in the previous chapter. Christ is coming to grant relief to those who are looking for him, who love him, who long for his appearing. He's coming to relieve us. And imagine how disappointing it would be if someone came along and said, he's already come. There is no day to look forward to. That day has already come. Uh, Because if, if that's the case, then life is going on just like it always has, and that coming doesn't seem to have made much of a dent in my life. Um... I remember a time I had the opportunity to address a, a rescue mission, and it was um, I had to, I could preach the gospel to people who were in you know homeless. They were in this rescue mission. 
you know, some of them were clearly paying more attention than others. Um, but I had the, the privilege of preaching the gospel to them and, and called on them to put trust in Christ that they might have eternal life. And um, I, I was preaching the gospel. And I remember talking to a man afterwards, and he said, why would I want to live this life forever? And I realized I hadn't made it clear what kind of life I was talking about. Um, that eternal life is different than this kind of life. But if the day of the Lord has already come, and life continues to go on this way, what are God's people looking forward to? Is this all that we have? Is this all that we're ever going to have? You can see how if someone comes along and says, Jesus has already come, the day of the Lord has already come, how that would alarm you, how that would shake you, to hear something like that, especially when it seems to come with a kind of authority. Um, Paul says, don't believe it when people say that to you, whether they say it to you by a spirit, a voice of prophecy, oh, the Lord has told me the day of the Lord has already come. Um, that could shake you to think that some spirit was speaking um, a spoken word or letter seeming to come from us. So someone's preaching saying, this is what the apostles are saying. Or holding up a letter saying, this is a letter from Paul. Or a letter from Peter saying, the day of the Lord has already come. You can see how that is discouraging, how that's alarming to say something like that. And so what is Paul's purpose in writing here? He says, if someone says that to you, do not believe them. Do not believe them if they say a spirit has told them to prophesy. Do not believe them if they say they're speaking an apostolic word. Do not believe them if they say they have a letter from us to that effect. If someone comes and tells you the day of the Lord has already come, do not believe them. Do not be deceived by that. Remember the truth that I've already spoken to you. Right? He reminds them of the glorious truths that he's outlined in this letter, and he outlined in the letter before this one in 1 Thessalonians. He taught them all about the day of the Lord that was coming and how that day would come. He taught them about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught them how we would be gathered together, right? He says, remember what I taught you. That's what you can be assured of. Um, I've taught you concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's coming in glory, that he's coming in power, that he's coming audibly, visibly, right? I've told you this, and I told you that when he comes, we will all be gathered together, the whole church, those who've died, those who are alive, all of us will be caught up together, and we will be with the Lord, all of us together. Paul's whole point is, that is an event that you cannot miss. It's not the kind of event that can pass by unknown, unheralded. Paul says, if that happens, you know it. So if someone comes to you and says, that day's already come, um, Paul says, you have our apostolic authority to say, no, it hasn't. Now, what exactly is being taught to the Thessalonian church is not 100% clear, um, but it is clear the implications. If that day has already come, there's nothing to look forward to. Um, where is the resurrection of the dead if the day of the Lord has already come? 
Um, and this is a claim that was not just being made in Paul's day. It's a claim that's been made in our day and continues to be made. That somehow we should regard the day of the Lord as already having come. Uh, that's, what, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That was one of their teachings. Uh, that in 1914, on October 1st, Jesus had come. Um, that Jesus had returned visibly. Uh, that was their, that, that was a tenant of their religion. And if you just think that that's an old-timey kind of thing, I remember preparing this sermon and reading a commentary that was written by a man who was going in a, to a conference in 2003 where church leaders were going to discuss how to combat a new teaching that was going around that Jesus had returned visibly in 70 A.D. and that he had returned figuratively and invisibly. Now, if we read Scripture and we read the testimony of the apostles, there is nothing invisible or figurative about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming not figuratively, but literally, really. And He's coming visibly in an event that cannot be missed. And that's Paul's purpose to write, so that God's people would not be taken in by this deception, would not be shaken would not be alarmed. Because that's what false teaching can do to us. Especially when it comes with a kind of authority. When it seems to be such a clear truth. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan seemed to come as one in the know. And he said, you know what the Lord said to you is not true. I have another word for you. The day you eat of the tree, you will not surely die. You'll actually be like God. In fact, he knows that. That's why he doesn't want you to eat. That was a false teaching. And what did it do? It shook them in their minds. And they listened. And they followed to their own destruction. And there are people who still do that today. Oh, the Holy Spirit has told me to say this. Well, the Roman Catholic Church is famous for this. We're just doing what the apostles said, even though they don't say any of this anywhere in anything they wrote. This is apostolic practice. And here we have the Apostle Paul saying, do not believe it. It will leave you shaken. It will leave you alarmed. Continue to hold fast to the truth of God's word. That the Lord Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And he's coming in an event that no one can miss. Right? There's nothing figurative or invisible about what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5-18. to Where Paul says, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God's truth is to be an encouragement to God's people. 
Just as false teaching will leave us alarmed and disquieted, the truth of God's word will always give us a sure foundation on which to rest, a truth on which we can rely, a comfort, a certainty for God's people. And so Paul's whole point in writing here is to be an encouragement. I mean, we're going to need to do that for one another from time to time. When we get shaken, when we get alarmed, maybe not by false teaching, but just by losing track of the truth, how can we encourage one another? By reminding one another of the certainties of the truths of Jesus Christ. Those sure foundations that can be anchors for our souls. That God loved us and sent His Son, who is coming again soon in glory to judge the living and the dead, to rescue his people, and to bring them into eternal blessedness. That's the truth that needs to comfort our souls. That's the purpose for which Paul is writing, saying, do not let people take you in with this idea that the day of the Lord has already come. This is his purpose in writing, and it's important for us to understand that purpose if we want to make any kind of sense of what follows. Paul writes for this comforting purpose to assure them once again of the collision course that that history is on um, that will be realized in the coming day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm reminding you not only of what I taught you concerning the coming of the Lord, but also concerning the signs that would accompany his coming. Um, Now he's referring to things that he's already taught them. Um, And maybe that's why we why it seems so mysterious to us, because he's summarizing what he's already taught to them. Um, And so it it presumes some knowledge on their part, Uh, but he is also writing to us, and so he wants to communicate certain things to us. But why can it not be that the day of the Lord has already come? He said, don't believe that, that's false, but why can you be assured that it's false? Well, Paul says, I've already taught you about the collision course that history is on, that this day cannot come without everyone knowing it because there are certain things that will accompany that day. There are signs of the times that we can know about. Now, the Bible talks about signs of the times in more than one place. This is a passage that talks about signs of the times. The Lord Jesus Christ also taught about the signs of the times. Uh, Think about Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 21 through 29. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Uh, There are signs of the times. Jesus talked about signs of the times. Paul's talking about signs of the times. But don't forget again the purpose for which the signs of the times are introduced. Why does Jesus talk about the signs of the times? 
He says, because the day will come when people say, look, here's the Christ, or there he is. And what does he say? Don't believe them. Um, it'll be obvious when the Christ comes, because all of these events will happen that will be undeniably connected to the Lord's coming. Here, too, Paul's doing the exact same thing that Jesus did. If someone comes and tells you the Lord has come, don't believe it. There are things that are connected with his coming that can't be missed. Notice in both places, the purpose for the passage is this, to disprove false teaching. The, the signs of the times are not given to us to be a kind of end-time scavenger hunt, where if you collect all the clues, then you can figure out when Jesus is going to come. That's not why these signs are given. What are these signs given to do? What is their purpose? Their purpose is to disprove false teachers, not to help us predict when the end will come. Um, its, its purpose is to say, if someone says Jesus has already come, you can say, no, he hasn't, because none of the things that are going to accompany his coming have happened. Um, that's the purpose for which there is given, for which they're given to us. Um, and they also remind us that God can speak with such certainty about what's going to happen at the end because he's declared the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen in the end because he's already decreed what's going to happen in the end. He's planned the end from the beginning. And that, that should be something of a comfort to us too, that everything that's happening in this world, even though it's moving on this collision course to this event in history that will end history and bring in an eternity of blessedness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, everything until that day is still being moved forward by our God. That He's moving history towards the ends for which He's appointed it. That when we kind of want to throw up our hands and say, why is God doing what he's doing? We can be comforted to know he's got a plan in history and it's moving towards a point that he has decreed for it. A confrontation between righteousness and unrighteousness. A confrontation between Christ and Antichrist that will end in the certain destruction of all that is wicked and evil and bring into, bring into the world a world in which only righteousness dwells. That we can be comforted to know that's the end that God has appointed for this world. This is the collision course on which history is running to the ultimate confrontation between righteousness and unrighteousness that will put an end to unrighteousness forever. It will put an end to sin and wickedness and all the fruit of sin and wickedness that has so corrupted and polluted this world. Um, into that time when all those former things are swept away by the grace of our God. Um, that's the comfort that we can have in reading these things. That while it can be disturbing to read, you know, that the mystery of lawlessness is building. Um, it's a disturbing thing to think about. It's a disturbing thing when we look around our world and say, I believe it. I believe it. That lawlessness is building. It's building to a point for which God has appointed it. Um, and when we see it, we can also be comforted to know then that means the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to deal with it. First um, John chapter 2, 18 reminds us, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
And at some point, lawlessness will reach this, this sort of fevered pitch. And this person, this man of lawlessness, will be revealed, who seems to be the, the pinnacle, the personification of evil in history. But why is he revealed? So that he might be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us about this kind of divine calculus that's being done for evil in the world. Uh, that the Lord is keeping track of the evil that's going on in the world, that he might take it into his hands and bring it to an account. And he gives us windows of that uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, think of when he speaks to Abraham about why his descendants would not come back to Canaan until the fourth generation um, after being enslaved in Egypt. What does he say in Genesis 15, 16? And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord had appointed a time when the iniquity of the Amorites would be complete, and he would bring the judgment of Israel down on the Amorites for their iniquity. God was keeping track. God had a plan. God had a moment in history when their wickedness would reach such a pinnacle that he would visit it with judgment. And the Bible tells us that the Lord is keeping our tears in a bottle and he's keeping track of our tossings, that he's noting wickedness and vexation in the world, that he might take it into his hands. And I think what Paul's reminding us here is just as the wickedness of the Amorites had a time at which it had grown to a point where it needed to be put down, so too the wickedness of this world is operating that same way. There is a time appointed by the Lord when it will have reached its pinnacle or its low point, depending how you want to look at it. But it will reach that point where he says, that is enough. It's reached the point for which I've decreed an end. And when that point is reached, then the end will come. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed in glory to put an end to it, right? Not his people doing it for him to a certain segment of the population in history, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself coming as king to put an end to history. Paul's point here is not to give us a divine scavenger hunt to figure out when the end will come. He's giving us this information to remind God's people again where history is being moved by the providential hand of our God to arrive at that point when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in glory to deal with wickedness and put it to an end. And we have to be reminded that, that is, there's, an, there's a plan in place. There's a plan being moved forward that our God is sovereign and he is moving history towards the end for which he's appointed it. And when that decisive moment comes, when the end of that collision course is reached, what is the crucial battlefield on which this fight will be fought? What he's teaching us in this passage is that the fight will be fought within the church. That's where this decisive fight takes place. Um, look again at verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. A rebellion here is a word we usually translate apostasy, those who departed from the faith. Uh, that, that's an inside the church kind of word. Those who were part and who've left, uh, that rebellion seems to be a, a specifically connected with the church. 
And then the man of lawlessness comes who sort of personifies and leads this movement. Now, again, it's not clear whether the movement produces the man or whether the man produces the movement, but the two are connected, this man of lawlessness and this widespread rebellion. Uh, This is an inside event, not an outside event. This is a religious movement in the church that the church is being called upon to be aware of. And I think that becomes clear when Paul gives him the name he gives him and tells us where he will be found. Who is the man of lawlessness? He's the son of destruction. Now, I think Paul uses that name very intentionally because it's a name we've heard before. It's a name who's been, that's been applied to someone before. It was the name that the Lord Jesus Christ applied to Judas Iscariot. He was the son of destruction. Now that's what Jesus called him in John 17, 12. And think of who Jesus, who Jesus said Judas was. He was a betrayer who was instigated by Satan. That he was a devil who, although chosen by Jesus as one of his 12 disciples, ended up betraying him. Uh, He's a hard character to think about because you imagine that he was there preaching the gospel with the other disciples. He may even have done the same miracles that the other disciples did. But who was he? He was a devil. He was a son of destruction. Uh, He was one instigated by Satan who turned on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's a very intentional reason that he's given this name to remind us of that inside threat of the church. Um, He's not an inside player, but an outside player. And his location says that too. He sits in the temple, um, replaces himself as an object of worship, um, claims to be God himself. Now, this is, what, this is what led some people to assume the temple has to be rebuilt because how could he take his place sitting in the temple if he's not, if there isn't a temple to take a seat in? But it sort of misses the thrust of the Old Testament or the New Testament teaching over and over again that the, the new covenant temple is Christ and his people. That's the inaugurated end times temple of God. In fact, Paul never once in all of his writings talks about the temple meaning the Old Testament temple. He was always is talking about either Christ or his church. I think that's another indication this threat is going to come from inside the church. Um, the threat that's raised up is not a worldwide power. This is a religious power. Uh, this is a religious deception that's going to happen. He's going to teach and deceive in the church. And so then what is the broad lesson for God's people? To always be on their guard to always be on their guard against those who would deceive and lead his people astray. To remind them that the dangers they face do not only come from outside the church. It would have been easy for a church like the Thessalonian church in the midst of suffering and persecution and affliction to always think the trouble was on the outside. The trouble's on the outside. If we can just protect the, the boundaries, we can keep ourselves safe. But what is the reminder here? Trouble often comes from inside. Um, When Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, where was the trouble going to come from? Who were the wolves that were going to come in? 
It wasn't from outside. Paul said, someone from among you will rise up and be wolves. Um, we can fall into a trap of always thinking the danger is on the outside. Um, political leaders or movements, intellectual movements, those are the real threats, the societal changes, those are the real threats. No, the real threat is that we stop believing what God has told us. That we abandon the truth of Jesus Christ. That we lose sight of the fact that He is King and He is coming. There is so much ink spilled over the man of lawlessness to try to figure out who he is and why he is. But the main thrust of the whole passage is he is going to be revealed, the pinnacle of lawlessness, and at his revelation when he's seen, then Jesus will be revealed. And when that height of evil is revealed, the height of goodness and glory will be revealed. And when that contest comes, it's no contest at all. He will kill him with the breath of his mouth, with his word. That's the point to which this is running. And so Paul's reminding us of that battlefield on which this will be fought, but leaving us with the hope that we have a king. And that when evil is revealed in all its horror, our king will be revealed in all his glory. And that will be an end not just to the wickedness of the man of lawlessness, but to the, wicked, the end of wickedness forever. That's the comfort to which the church is continually brought back to be reminded we have a king. And really all his coming does is show him to us. Because he's fighting for us now. He's defending us now. He's reigning now. That day will just be his revelation. We will see him. And we will see him conquer. And we will see his glory. What is Paul writing here to say to God's people? Don't be deceived. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you'll know it. And wickedness will know it. And it will be an end to the way things have been. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so the victory is sure. Thank God for such a king. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this comforting word. Thank you for the reminder that we are given not to allow people to discomfort our minds by telling us that Christ has already come. We thank you for this reminder that when he comes, it will be an event that we cannot miss. Uh, when he will gather us all together with his people throughout all generations and we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. We pray for those who've been taken in by false and deceptive theologies that have alarmed them and caused them to be shaken, particularly concerning the day of the Lord. And we pray that you would reveal the truth to them and that we would be those who remain firm in the truth and put our trust and faith in what your word has said. May we have that same spirit that our Lord Jesus had when tempted by the devil that he simply responded with, it is written, standing on the sure foundation of your word. Help us to do the same and to live with the hope that when Jesus Christ is revealed, that will be an end not just to the man of lawlessness, but to lawlessness forever. May you speed that day, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.